0: Welcome to the Great Lakes Equity Center Equity Spotlight Podcast. This podcast series will highlight organizations and individuals in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, Michigan, Ohio, and Indiana who are working to advance equitable practices within school systems. This is the fourth episode in the Centering Equity and Educator Effectiveness podcast series. Each episode in this series will focus on demonstrating equitable practices in curriculum, instruction, or the learning environment.
1: This is the second of a three-part series with Dr. Muhammad Khalifa. Today, we will continue discussing centering equity in culturally responsive and sustaining learning environments for Muslim students. In part one of this series, Dr. Khalifa provided a summary of the complex global history of the experience of Muslims and stressed the importance of grounding equity work for Muslim students in that history. He also described and explained some of the overt, as well as subtle, ways that anti-Muslim sentiment and Islamophobia may take form in schools. Part two of this series is a continuation of part one and begins with a discussion of the unique lived experiences Muslim students bring to schools. Um, I want to talk about how educators and school leaders can be responsive um, to those circumstances that are specifically and particularly unique to Muslim students. Um, and also about, you know, you've written about culturally responsive school leadership and, and behaviors that center um, inclusion and equity, advocacy, and social justice. Um, if, you could, if you could elaborate for us on um, what those behaviors might look like in schools, um, and, you know, in some ways that school leadership and, a, and teachers can be responsive um, to Muslim students.
2: Um, so one of the things that I think educators and school leaders have to do uh, in order to be responsive to the needs of Muslim students is they have to kind of become aware of how, how oppression works, how it changes shape, how it hides, how it's normalized, um, without understanding that, then not only will they not understand Muslim, how to address the needs of Muslim students, but any minoritized student group, they won't understand any, but they certainly won't understand Muslims. Um, the role of liberation. Many of my white colleagues, we, we joke, um, because they, they're many of them are, are um, critical white scholars. They understand how to critique whiteness, white supremacy, colonialization, colonialism. And that sort of thing. But when it comes to when it comes to that uh, that notion of self determination, then I think many of them take a pause because what that means is allowing indigenized and minority to carve out for themselves what they see. It's not just that they want to take the place of the colonizer or of a white person in society. They actually want to carve out spaces, safe spaces outside of school and inside of schools that can Work for them and help them reach their goals as a community and as a people, and so um, with that 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 might mean, for example, community-based education work. So, uh, so leaders have to, as you know from my scholarship, I'm a huge proponent and advocate for teachers be outside of the building and into communities to kind of find out, and that that would extend to the Muslim community. So if a leader is being social just socially just, and if the leader is already engaging in advocacy work for communities communities they serve, then this, I think, could easily be extended and should be extended to Muslim students. If they're not doing these things, though, which communities are not, they have to begin doing them for all of their minoritized students, in particular, the, the, the most um, marginalized students in their communities and such. Um, they also, I think, along the lines of this, uh, we mentioned, for example, um, uh, white privilege, Mm-hmm. But we also have to talk about this notion of Christian privilege. Uh, Muslims have to juggle how they're going to eat in a lunchroom. I mean, we have to pray five times a day. So that means that one of the prayers falls within the time frame of school. And so they, they, and so for us so so i don't I don't know how much time we have, but not to belabor history again, but we have to understand that religion, modern-day religion itself is an invention. And that means that, look, we will do, as leaders, we'll kind of have this empire or whatever, but in order to maintain a semblance of religion, let's say religion is on Sundays at these very specific spaces and times. Well, Muslims don't see it that way. For us, it's a lifestyle. It's an entire lifestyle. We're constantly doing this whole thing, notion of critical self-reflection. We're, 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 we have to do that throughout the day. And so we, have to, we, we take time away for spirituality and for reconnecting with a higher cause and thinking about how our day is going. We do this constantly. It's not just like a Sunday or a Friday type thing. And so um, Christian privilege, for example, encroaches upon this faith and our ability to do that, whereas all of the Christian holidays are off. We call it spring break now. We call it winter break now, but we all know really what's going on. We call it the weekend or Saturday and Sunday, but we all really know, that that was designed. Now it's invisibilized now again, right? It's invisible, but it was designed for some and not for others. And so I'm I'm not proposing that we change that. We change the holidays in order to, but we have to at least be aware of how Christian privilege operates within schools and not only with the holidays. That's the easy thing but even ways of understanding the world and reality, there are some very specific uh, ways I think that Muslims make Muslims unique, and we'll get into that a little little later in the conversation. But I I think it's not necessarily upon all leaders to understand that in in great detail, but it is upon them to create this space that I'm speaking about so that Muslims can comfortably coexist in both or maybe more than just two in fact, likely more than two of them could be immigrant and could be African-American. I'm not sure if you know this, but a third of Muslims in this country are African-American who converted over the last 50, 60 years or something like that. And maybe 10% are white Americans who also converted. Uh, and so uh, allowing them space to coexist um, with their Muslim identity, with their American identity, and with their other identities is probably the most crucial thing. That school leaders and schools can do, and so that reaches out to your uh, policy question as well, and and just recognizing that Muslims are spiritual beings, you know, and and that um, they should not be made to feel bad for beliefs that they have. Uh, whereas, and, and so so here, it, what what happens in this country is that, um, it, it's it's promoted that this is a that this is. Um, a country, so this, this, sort of the liberal argument is that, the liberalist argument is that as long, I, I can do anything that I would like to do as long as I'm not encroaching, encroaching upon the rights of other people, right? Mm-hmm. However, for, um, for the Muslim community, that's a very destructive, and not just the Muslim community, other indigenous communities, but we're talking about Muslims, that's a very destructive approach because for us, and for other minoritized people, we center the community's interest above the individual. You see what I'm saying? Yes. And so so that's that's diametrically opposed. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that school leadership uh, subscribe to the way that Muslims might view the world. I'm not suggesting that, but at least give the space so that they can actualize who they are in public schools. Okay.
1: You know, you had mentioned that, um, you know, there are certain things that make Muslims unique and, you know, schools providing the space that, um, you know, where Muslim students can coexist with their, with multiple identities. Um, And with that, I, and I had read something you had written about how school discipline policies can um, problematize behaviors or manners of speech or dress or other cultural customs that wouldn't normally be problems if you're subscribing to um, you know a dominant culture or dominant norms. Um, and so what what ways can educators and policymakers start to provide spaces by that maybe maybe in the context of, of discipline policies if we
2: So um, it's important to note that Muslims uh, we're, we're talking about them in a way. That's really, to be honest, a, a bit simplified. And I know we're doing that uh, because so so it's probably more. I alluded to it a second ago. It's probably more useful for us to talk about Muslims and how they identify in this context. So you have these African American Muslims, which is about again a third of Muslims here, and then you have other Black Muslims who are, are somewhere from the African continent, East Africa, here up in Minneapolis, where I am now and then Columbus Columbus and some other places, West Africans in Columbus also, and in Houston and some other places. And so these African Muslims who came here from Muslim countries within the past, say, 40 to 50 years, mostly under 20 years, though, they then identify, some of them, as African-American Muslims. they, They identify as Muslims. But they also identify with cultural practices as African-Americans, some of them, a large number of them in public schools. So there are authors like um, Foreman and others that have written about, that have written about how this happens. So then you have other Muslims, though, who came here and up until, say, 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, had sort of become just like in ways that the Irish, in ways that the uh, Italians, in ways that Jews became white. Yes. You know, these communities were very discriminated against. They were in enclaves, ghettoized enclaves, in fact, in New York and other places. And eventually, though, they were able to become white. Well, many of these Muslim immigrants from, so Indians, so it's a model minority thing, so Indians, and when I say Indians, I mean from India, um, were identified, they were, they were not oppressed in the ways that, for example, Native Americans, African Americans, Latinos were oppressed. They were able to live in white areas from the very beginning. They were able to get white jobs. They were able to assimilate into white America. Many of them uh, wanted to marry uh, white people and in fact did, which is fine. But you have to understand that for Muslims, though, that changed. For, for Muslims from Syria, from the Syrian area who have white skin, or from Lebanon, who have very light skin, or from Turkey, or from other places, they were able to become white, whereas blacks were. So, in other words, when I'm, I'm, I'm trying to draw out some of the nuances, and I know our time is limited, but I'm trying to draw out some of the nuances there. Not all Muslims are equal in the regard of assimilation into American society. Some have additional barriers because of the color of their skin and because of the place, the, uh, how they identify when they come uh, the resources they come with when they come, if you come as an involuntary refugee, that means probably that you don't have much money when you came, whereas if you come uh, for, for as, as an engineer or a medical doctor and you were educated back home, that has impl- implications for how you will experience life here. So going back to your question, so now that we have that out of the way, going back to your question, I I would argue that school leaders and policies and disciplinary policies, if they are already anti-oppressive in their works, they don't really need to do anything different. They just need to extend that anti-oppressive work to, to, they they need to extend it to communities that have most of the students. If they're not doing anti-oppressive works already, well, then they need to go ahead and look at this great, great body of literature that myself and other scholars have been contributing to uh, doing equity audits, which means that you're looking at who's suspending what students, how frequently, what programs, don't have, for example, Ethiopian Muslim students or other um, Muslim students in it, are they underrepresented, are they overrepresented in special education? Here in the Twin Cities there's an overrepresentation of Somali students in special education classes. And really what the board is on it boils down to is that white teachers don't understand how Somali students are, are, are existing in schools. And so, they, for them, it has to be a learning uh, deficiency, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or disability, rather, um, and so. Uh, so that's that's one start. Another thing is that there are uh, unique ways, I would argue, that indigenized people, Indigenous people, and Muslim have as it pertains to solving conflict. And when something foreign happens, I think this can this can be seen in a number of countries. So, for example, um, not to belabor the point, but in, in in East African conflicts right now, so Somalis had. For, for, for millennia, I would argue, uh, very indigenous ways of solving conflicts between tribes, within tribes, so on and so forth. And in the past hundred years, that changed. Foreign ways of governance came in and so on and so forth. And I'm, I'm not Somali, but at my reading of history suggests that these indigenous ways, these historic ways of solving conflicts were uprooted. And so I would, I would suggest that school leaders find tribal elders, for example, to come in and help mitigate. Or uh, it doesn't have to be an elderly person, it could be a mentor from the community, a community based mentor to come in. Not as, so, so school districts have been hiring Somali liaisons and Ethiopian liaisons in order, and and what, and and what some of them unfortunately have been doing is deficitizing. The Somali community or the East African community for white administrators. I personally have said in many of these meetings, and uh, these they are saying things like, you know, um, our our community, they they can't read, they don't even know how to write their name, and just confirming a white educator that, hey, it's not your fault, good white educators, that the Somali students are failing out of school and this and that. And that's very problematic. So, it School districts have to be careful not to choose Somalis that will just confirm uh, whiteness and white practices that are hegemonic for people of color. They have to be careful about that. That being said, there are ways that districts can go into communities and actually locate and find older people and younger people who could serve as mentors and help mitigate conflict between not just students at schools, but between communities and schools. Uh, training, making sure that teachers are up to date in training and about cultural practices, spiritual practices, religious practices of so Muslim students are uh, all things. So this is just a part of the beginning of, of work that anti-impressive leaders and anti-impressive educators sort of engage. And uh, so it just has to be extended in the same way that we reach out to the black community, African-American community, the same way we reach out to the uh, migrant uh, community and other Hispanic or Latino or Chicano uh, people. And in the same way we uh, reach out to indigenous people, we have to extend that. And if we're not doing that for these other communities, that's very problematic, of course. But if we are, then we have to extend that to Muslim students as well and get past this whole notion of a separation between church and state, because it, as we already discussed, Christianity is rife and is the controlling order in all public schools that I've ever visited. So it's not about, uh, and, but but when you claim it's not, then you visualize it and you normalize. Christian space, and that's problematic. So instead of doing that, what we have to do is say, okay, look, we just have to make sure that all of our spiritual people have a space in school.
1: And that concludes part two of our three-part series with Dr. Muhammad Khalifa.
0: This podcast was brought to you by the Great Lakes Equity Center, directed by Gail Cosby. To find out about other Great Lakes Equity Center podcasts and other resources, visit our website. To subscribe to a podcast, click on the podcast link located on the Great Lakes Equity Center website at www.greatlakesequity.org. The Great Lakes Equity Center is funded by the U.S. Department of Education to provide technical assistance, resources, and professional learning opportunities related to equity, civil rights, and systemic school reform throughout the six-state region of Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Minnesota, Ohio, and Wisconsin. The contents of this presentation were developed under a grant from the u.s department of education however these contents do not necessarily represent the policy of the department of education and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government this podcast and its contents are provided to educators local and state education agencies and or non-commercial entities for the use for educational training purposes only no part of this recording may be reproduced or utilized in any form or by any means, electronic or mechanical, including recording, or by any information storage and retrieval system without permission in writing from the Great Lakes Equity Center. Finally, the Great Lakes Equity Center would like to thank Indiana University School of Education, as well as Principal Investigator, Dr. Kathleen King-Torius, and Co-Principal Investigators, Dr. Brendan Maxey and Dr. Tishun Nguyen. For their leadership and guidance in the development of all tools and resources to support Region 5.